Let's open up the inspired scriptures to Isaiah chapter 7. Our text is found in Matthew chapter 1. We'll turn to that later. But our scripture reading is Isaiah 7. I'd like you to notice especially the history that's occurring here. And in particular, notice with me verse 14. And we'll be picking up on that prophecy in Matthew chapter 1. So Isaiah chapter 7, this is God's word. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou, and share Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house 
days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head, and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep, and it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, ye shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. It shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. And so far we read the word of the Lord. Let's now turn to Matthew 1. Matthew 1 and the text is verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we are well familiar with the events that transpire in Matthew 1, the context of what we're considering this afternoon. The angel of the Lord, we don't know which one, could have been Gabriel, perhaps not, appears to Joseph. And that was an important appearance to Joseph because the fact is even though Joseph and Mary had not yet come together intimately they were espoused they had spoken vows to each other as legally binding as marriage but they had not come together yet Joseph during that period discovers that Mary is with child. 
The only conclusion that he can come to is that she has been with a man. And he's filled with fears as he's thinking through these things, which is why the angel has to come to him in verse 20 and say, fear not. His mind is spinning a hundred miles an hour. What am I going to do? How could this be? And that's why before the angel comes to him, it says at the beginning of verse 20, he thought on these things. There's a passionate frame of mind within him. And being a loving, godly man, true son of David that he was, he intended to put away Mary privately, which means among the couple of different options that he might take for divorce, he chose the quietest one possible. Just as all these things are coursing within him, the angel comes, pierced to Joseph in a dream, verse 20, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Immediately, can you imagine the emotions? Relief. She hasn't been with someone else after all. That child in her is conceived from or out of the Holy Spirit. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit, that is, that there is conception in her womb. And there is, of course, deep theological significance and meaning to that fact, conception by the Holy Spirit. And then the angel goes on to identify exactly who this baby is that is inside Mary. What's his name? What's his work? So the angel says, verse 21, she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is who he is. He's the Savior. He saved the particular people, his own, the elect. He saves them from their sins. What a wonderful name is that personal name of our Savior. Now, our text. It's difficult to know whether verses 22 and 23, which we're considering this afternoon, whether these are also the words of the angel of the Lord or not. Some take the position that the angel is continuing to speak here. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord and so on. Others take the position that this is more a commentary and that the angel is no longer speaking to Joseph. Either position that you take doesn't really matter whether this is the angel continuing to talk or whether this is commentary. Both options would go the route of this is the inspired word of God and both options, either way you go, do not take away from the meaning of the text. What we have here is a fulfillment of God's word through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, which is why we read that a few minutes ago. 7 verse 14 of Isaiah, virgin shall conceive and so on. And now what the angel, what is said in our text 
is a fulfillment of that chapter and that verse in Isaiah. So we'll take notice of that, especially in the second point. This is one of those texts that can do well for Christmas, of course. We're talking about Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what this prophecy is all about. But it does well also for an old year service. And that's the way I intended to have it for you this afternoon. What a comfort. As you look back upon the past year, that there is Emmanuel who has been with you. And so we'll notice that comfort, especially in the third point. Let's take this under the theme, the virgin-born Emmanuel. Let's notice, first of all, the fact of it. Secondly, the prophecy of it. And then third, not focusing so much on the theology behind this, but delivering it home for comfort, the comfort of it. The fact of it, the prophecy of it, and the comfort of it. Our text begins, verse 22, this way. Now, verse 23, rather. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Calls Mary there a virgin, and that's certainly what she was. And if you go to the book of Luke, chapter 1, that same fact is emphasized before the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to announce the conception of the birth of Christ. We read there in Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 and 7. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. She's a virgin, meaning that at this point she had not been in that intimate way with any man. She had not been with Joseph. She had not been anyone else either she was a virgin like I called your attention to before Joseph and Mary were espoused meaning they spoke vows to each other that were as binding as marriage but they had not yet consummated their marriage that comes out in Matthew 1 verse 18 as well where it says now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And yet, a virgin conceives. A virgin will give birth to a son. Literally, verse 23, a virgin shall have in the womb and will bear a son. That, of course, means that Joseph is completely excluded here. In fact, every man is out of the picture completely. A virgin conceives. The explanation, as I briefly alluded to before, is found in verse 20 when the angel says, Fear not to take unto thee, Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. He who is God 
and infinitely powerful. He's the one that has worked in the womb of Mary so that there is conception there. That's why our text this afternoon has a behold. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Because what we have here is a miracle. I know you go to liberal seminaries today and also some churches and you'll be laughed right out of the room. You believe the virgin birth? Many in the world and in the science community will scoff at that too. You really mean to tell me that you still believe that someone who has had no relations with a man can have a baby? You're backward. That's the view of so many today. But over against that, it's a doctrine that we hold very, very dear and precious. The virgin birth. This is a thing to behold even in this afternoon with awe and with worship. Something that's amazing to us. And so, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Puts it pretty simply there. We're well familiar with the history, but we love to hear the history, don't we? Especially at this season of the year. As far as the timeline is concerned, the angel Gabriel came to Mary to announce to her Jesus' birth. Very soon after that, Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and she's there for a few months. And it's probably after that point that the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, appears to him in a dream, and tells him about this conception. Then Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus decrees that all the world should be taxed. So if you're a family, you have to go to your designated town for taxation. Joseph and Mary must go to the little town of Bethlehem. So that's where they go. Mary is heavily pregnant at this point. And so they arrive in Bethlehem. Matthew 1 verse 25 gives it very briefly. Joseph knew not Mary till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, though, gives a little more detail about what happens in Bethlehem. Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. They arrived to the town. People who came to pay their taxes would need a place to stay. And so you have these inns, a kind of building with some guest rooms, no room in the inn, so they go to the cave or barn. That's where she gives birth to Jesus, lays him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, and wraps him in swaddling clothes or strips of cloth. That baby 
is Emmanuel. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Has to be interpreted, of course, because we're dealing with an Old Testament prophecy out of Isaiah 7, which we'll come to in a few moments. And so this name Emmanuel is by interpretation now for readers, God with us. It's a name. And you know enough, thinking about the names of God and the names of the Savior, to know that they're much deeper and have a lot more meaning than our names do. We use our names just to identify one another, and my name is this and yours is that, and we can distinguish one another. But our names don't have much significance to them. But when it comes to the Savior's names, they do. He's identified here as Emmanuel, which is showing, opening up, revealing who he is, his identity. What is that? He is God with us. They shall call him that, the word of God says. I take that to mean the very same people mentioned in the verse right before our text, the elect. The angel of the Lord just got done saying, he shall save his people from their sins. And now it's those people, including Joseph and Mary and the elect remnant back then, they shall call him Emmanuel, that which God eternally appointed him to be called and set down in the Old Testament scripture already, that which he shall be called, that is now what they shall call him. They'll rejoice over that, celebrate that. And so will you and I call him that. We have our children sing songs about Emmanuel. We preach about him pray concerning that name, we too call him Emmanuel. God with us. You can only understand that in light of the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity Glorious, majestic, he who is God, second person of the Trinity, took upon himself flesh, our flesh. That's the incarnation. The eternal, only begotten Son of God assumed the human nature, this real, true, complete, weakened, but also sinless human nature. He assumed that. That's the incarnation. And there you have God with us. God taking our human nature into union with himself. God 
intimately close to us. God very close to us. God in fellowship with us. That's the name. And you can only understand it in light of the incarnation. But you can also only understand Emmanuel in light of the blood of the cross. God with us. Who is that us? Well, it's the same people as mentioned in the verse right before our text. He shall save his people from their sins, the elect, those given to Jesus Christ in eternity. That's who the us are. So far, that's understandable. But that us is sinners. Damn, worthy, guilty sinners who carry in them, and you and I do, a sinful nature every single day until the day that we die and we're guilty for that depravity. We who have sins that come out of that old man and every single one of those sins, we're guilty for them. We are dreadful sinners. And it says God with us. How can that be? The only way that you can understand is that he can be with us through the blood of atonement. Only through blood. Now you understand why the temple must have been drenched with blood and how it must have smelled like that in Jerusalem. All of these animal sacrifices... Because God was teaching them, I can be with you, Israel, only through blood and not of these animals in the Old Testament, but these are also pictures. They're pictures of the one who's to come, and I can be with you only through his shed blood. Can't understand Emmanuel without seeing the cross. Indeed, Son of God willingly took flesh to himself for the very purpose that he, who in one person is very God and very man, might save us from our sins. Congregation, in one word, Emmanuel, is wrapped up all of covenant theology. How much don't we talk about the covenant in our churches? We say and we believe that is the crown jewel of all of God's word. So precious, the covenant. And now you have it all wrapped up in this one name. And then you think of the Old Testament, the tabernacle. And you think of the temple and how God was giving them all sorts of Pictures, as in in a picture book, I dwell with you. And how many times didn't he promise that in the old dispensation? I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, my people. I'm with you. And now that's all bundled right up in Emmanuel. God with us. Friendship, fellowship, 
that's astounding. Manual takes about one second to say. And it takes up about a half or one inch in a printed Bible. But you and I are going to be studying that name and loving it and searching it for all eternity because there's such depth there. God with us. God, infinite one, exalted, high and lifted up, the one who knows all things and is everywhere present. God, who is perfectly wise, who is infinitely powerful, about whom Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. God, the one who stands completely above time and history. He is eternal. In fact, He's the one who created time. It's one of his creatures. We can hardly comprehend that even. God, the one who's uncreated and invisible and infinitely glorious in all of his attributes that so brilliantly and perfectly shine from him. God, the same one who made Billions and billions and billions of stars, so many that if you ask science today, they say we don't even know how many stars there are out there, much less galaxies. And God's the one who not only made them, but holds them all up. He is with us. That takes your breath away. Pleased to dwell with mere, time-bound, little, tiny, puny creatures living on this earth and sinners besides. In the incarnation, God came down to us. That's God in the flesh who's wrapped up in rags and lying in a feeding trough for animals. That's God in the flesh who's walking Palestine's streets and his feet getting dusty. And God in the flesh who hangs on Calvary's tree bleeding to cover the guilt of our sins. And that's Jesus Christ very God and very man who rises in victory from the grave and ascended into heaven and now sits in perfect rule at God's right hand. Yes, there are depths to that name. Such treasure and joy and thrill and pleasure contained in that name. And now you can see why you can exit those doors. At the end of this service, with true cheer of soul and even a little taste of heaven. What love, what grace that God would dwell with us. That was prophesied in the Old Testament 
That's why we read Isaiah 7 together, in particular verse 14, because there you have Isaiah making a prophecy, and now we'll get to that in a moment, Matthew 1, our text, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Before we get to the prophecy itself, I'd like you to notice with me just a little bit of the historical context surrounding what Isaiah says. These are the days in the Old Testament of King Ahaz, the ruler of Judah. By this time, of course, the kingdoms have divided, and so in the north, you have the northern tribes, we call that Israel, and then in the south, you have Judah and Jerusalem. Now the southern portion, Ahaz is the king of that. Began reigning at 20 years old. The Bible says he did not do that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he went so far as to adopt the abominations of the heathen around Judah. These were very dark days. These were not good. Not only in terms of the fact that you have a wicked king on the throne, but also because there were enemies that were coming against Ahaz, against Judah and Jerusalem. We read of them in Isaiah 7. Their names are Reason, with a Z in the middle, Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of the northern tribes, which we call Israel. Reason and Pekah get together. They ally themselves together against Jerusalem. And the threat here especially is this. They intend to take Judah and Jerusalem's king off the throne, and they intend, the enemies do, to put their own king on the throne. It's always important when we read the Old Testament to remember these are not merely the conflict of one nation against another and political things going on. We always have to remember the underlying thing. If they remove the king out of Jerusalem... They have removed a king from the royal line. And we all know that there's a royal line running through much of the Old Testament. And who's going to come out of that royal line? Christ is the king. The threat here is that reason and Pekah come against Ahaz, remove the king of Judah, and thus sever that royal line. And Christ doesn't come. Whether these Men are so aware of that. But Satan is. And Satan is behind them attempting to get the king off the throne and thus severing that royal line and stopping Christ from coming. It's in that context now that we have Isaiah's prophecy concerning the virgin birth. What God does is he sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to tell Ahaz all those plans of the enemy, 
And what they're intending to do, it's not going to work out, Ahaz. They're not going to succeed. And so you read in Isaiah 7, verse 4, And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and the son of Remaliah. But Ahaz is wicked. He's not going to listen to God's prophet. And so Isaiah tells Ahaz, Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign, something very tangible, that the enemies will not overcome Judah and Jerusalem. Ask for a sign for that. Verse 11, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height thereof. But what Ahaz ends up doing is he refuses a sign, a sort of a pious hypocrisy. So he says in verse 12, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. But the Lord is going to give a sign anyway. And that is verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's the sign that reason and Pekah will not be able to prevail against Israel and remove that king from the throne. The sign is of the virgin birth and Emmanuel. Now it's right at this point that you might be a little bit puzzled at first. How is the virgin birth and Emmanuel, how is that a sign back in these days of the Old Testament that the enemies will not be able to prevail against Judah? Well, follow this logic. Isaiah prophesies that the Emmanuel will come. That's clear enough. And of course, he has to come from that royal line. And therefore, for the Emmanuel to come, that royal line has to stay intact. And if the royal line of David stays intact, then that must mean that the enemies in Ahaz's day will not be successful in overcoming Judah and breaking apart that line. If you follow the logic that way, virgin birth and Emmanuel is a sign that the enemies will not prevail against Judah. But you can also think of it this way. Who is this Emmanuel? He's God with us. He's the one who's going to bring salvation. He's going to establish a mighty kingdom in his own blood, a spiritual kingdom. He's going to defeat all his enemies not reason, not pika, not any enemy will ever be able to prevail against the church. He's Emmanuel, God with us. In that sense, too. The virgin birth and Emmanuel is a sign that Judah will not be overcome by her foes. It's of this prophecy now that Matthew 1 our text is a fulfillment. 
That's why the text begins, verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Here you have the fulfillment of that. Could say probably more, but keep it at this. God is faithful. Never swerves from his promises. They are yea and sure and amen. And if he says that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth, there will be Emmanuel. That's going to happen. And Matthew emphasizes that. God never swerves from to the right, to the left, but keeps straight on with what he's promised to do. And then keep in mind also that this is the book of Matthew. And you may know that Matthew is written to Jews. That's the audience that it's intended for. And so when you read through the book of Matthew, it's striking how many times you encounter this little phrase, all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Or it came to pass that which was prophesied. Because Matthew is stressing to this Jewish audience the fulfillment of all these things from the Old Testament. So for a Joseph or a Mary, they would have known Isaiah 7 and they would have been thrilled at the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 7. Beloved, we understand God with us theologically. We can connect the dots doctrinally. And we can say that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah, all good and true. But there is not much else that is more comforting than this. When you think of it from the point of view that this was a sign of salvation, remember, the Lord himself shall give a sign. And what is that? The virgin birth. That was a, a thing that pointed to, that's what a sign does, or indicated salvation. Think about how that was comforting already way back in the days of Ahaz. Not comforting for him. He's a wicked man. And the only thing that happens for him is that he's further hardened by this sign. But God did have his remnant. He always had his people. And for them to hear Isaiah's prophecy that there is a virgin that will conceive and give birth in Emmanuel. Can you imagine what sort of encouragement that would have been for them as they hear all these rumors of enemies coming against Jerusalem and all of their threats? Our God saves and our enemies will not overrun us. And then when you think of this as a sign of salvation, that must have been very consoling at the time of Matthew 1 as well for Joseph and Mary, for them to think to themselves, yes, the fulfillment of the promise is almost here. Our God certainly saves, and he preserves his church. But even for you, you don't live at the time of Ahaz. 
or during the days of Matthew 1. You live in 2023, almost 24. But the fact that the virgin birth and Emmanuel is a sign of salvation is significant for you too. It's a sign that has been accomplished. He has gone to the cross for your sins and you may be assured of that and risen from the grave and gone to heaven. And just as sure as that sign was, so you may be certain that he's coming again. He will to bring in final and full salvation at that last day. So we look with hope at that. But it's consoling. Not only from the point of view this is a sign of salvation, but also from this perspective. God with us. Which is to say, congregation, we are never alone. Never. You're not going to find that comfort anywhere else. It's not, children, in toys and presents and stockings. You want to have presents? You want to play with your toys? Fine. But that's not your comfort. It's not in hot chocolate and warm fires and holiday trays of food and a comfortable retirement plan and, and a money and a wallet lined with money and even in having all of the circumstances of my day all lined up so that everything goes according to plan, that's not where our comfort is found. Only in Emmanuel. We have opportunity this afternoon to reflect upon the year gone by, old years. What have you gone through in 2023? What sort of things, when the minister was preaching the sermon at this time last year in December, what things did you never anticipate to happen in your life? But they did. And some of them very unexpectedly. And what kind of sufferings have you found in your life in the past 365 days? There is only one constant, one unfailing thing. The Lord is with me. That has not changed at all in this past year. You have God, and therefore you have everything. What can you have more than Him? And having Him, you are so very exceedingly rich. You have it all. And having him is not only comfort knowing the past year, but having him and that he'll never leave you nor forsake you is a consolation as you walk 
into 2024 as well. It means even though people have left me in my life and turned their back on me, even though I face much adversity in my life, even though my foes come up against me, not reason and pika anymore, but Satan and his horde of demons and my sinful flesh in the world, though all these things come against me and are happening in my life, I am not alone, for he is with me and he'll never leave me. That is Emmanuel. He's with me through all of these dark days on this earth, but those days won't be forever. The darkness will be dispelled and we'll experience the reality of God with us forever in glory with all of its intimacy, its thrill, and its joys. Emmanuel, your comfort in 2023, in 2024, and forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, it is with so much joy that we take upon our lips that name Father. For it, too, communicates to us that thou art a God who loves us, who dwells with us, and will never leave nor forsake. We thank thee for this astounding covenant reality. We pray, Father, that we would worship thee in thanksgiving every day of our lives for it. Comfort the hearts of thy people here. Strengthen their faith and quicken their hope as we end one year and soon open up another. For Jesus' sake, alone, amen. <laughs>